We have the um, privilege today of looking to God's Word. I hope that's what it is for you. To take this time aside to open up the Scriptures, and particularly today, an opportunity to study the words of Christ yet again. Although I say that with every passage that we open, but it is a privilege. I hope we count it as that this morning. We have been studying through a very strong, solemn teaching of Christ. We have gone through this chapter and we've seen its seriousness of warnings and of um, of determined judgment, should we not heed those warnings. We have been told in no uncertain terms what should be the goal and aspiration of our life. Throughout this, we have had what I began to call an undertone of discussion of Christ's return. But after more careful study, I think it would be more appropriate to call it an overtone. For consistently throughout Christ's teaching here, His focus has been upon what happens when He comes back. What happens when we stand before God? What happens beyond these days when we get to that day? And so we come to a portion of Scripture that focuses in very clearly upon that day, a day that we often associate with joy that we saw last week might be better associated sometimes with sorrow. And yet there is eternal joy waiting on the other side of that. And we have a great example of that in our passage this morning. And so we're going to look at this in terms of the Lord's coming, of the seriousness of it, as well as the joy and the necessity for the people of God to be discerning about His coming. And what that means to our life and what that means to our relationships and uh, what that means in terms of our walk with God. Before we do that, let's go, Lord, in prayer together this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word before us and we pray that You might help us to be careful in our understanding of it, in our hearing of it, but Lord, also in our response to it, that it might be by faith, believing it, knowing that belief leads to obedience. Lord, this is our prayer for your people this morning. Guard this time, Lord, as we pray consistently that you might uh, guard it from opinions, guard it from the thoughts of men that it might be truly according to your word of truth. And Lord, we just commit it to you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we uh, are entering into the holiday season of celebrating Christ's coming, His first advent. We uh, sing songs as we're going to sing, and we sang already this morning, songs of Christ's coming. And we will recall and bring to mind statements made by angels to shepherds of peace on earth and goodwill toward men. And we will recount all the joy and all the positive aspects of the purpose of Christ's coming, and rightly so, for there is great power in, the, in those purposes of Christ, which is our deliverance from sin and from the curse of sin, death. Um, but we also might, in the course of that, lose track of the other aspects of Christ's coming, that Christ's coming is certainly joy and hope and 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 all of that, but it is also something else. And Christ here is going to take time aside for the multitudes, for the disciples, and for us to remind us of this purpose that He had. That not only was Christ here to bring about this salvation for mankind, He's also coming not as uh deliver as Messiah, but He's also coming as Lord and King and Judge. And so we want to look at His role there and, and begin to understand it and place it in the context of all of chapter 12 and really going back into chapter 11 
where he spoke to the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law. And there his warnings to them, his woes upon them. And so this is going to uh, somewhat culminize uh, this uh, portion of preaching by Jesus Christ. And so he comes to verse 49 and having uh, made a statement regarding four different kinds of servants that we looked at last week, we found that three out of the four um, had some judgment waiting for them. One of them going off into eternal flame, uh, being counted among the unbelievers who believed that they were once serving God. Very frightening text. Two of which were to earn stripes, that is, beatings, if you will, for unfaithful service, either out of laziness or out of ignorance, was uh, only varied the number of beatings. It didn't vary the act of it. And so we have that this, and we only have one out of four classifications, not of the world, but of Christians. I want to get that clear to you. This is not... God saying the world is divided up into these four groups of people. He's saying my the, those who call themselves by not my name are divided up into these four groups of people. So there'll be unbelievers who aren't in this context at all. Other than the fact that one fourth, one 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 a fourth of the group calling themselves by the name of Christ are going to be associated with the unbelievers and have their judgment. So we're talking about the people called by the name of Christ, called by God's name, God's people, if you will, who claim that title. And one-fourth of them, looking at eternity in, in the lake of fire, uh, two, a half of them uh, looking at uh, very serious judgment at the judgment seat of Christ, and only one out of four contemplating or facing really a positive uh, event at the judgment of Christ. And so coming off of that, we find Christ trying to explain his role and why this shouldn't surprise us that this is part of his message. Yes, a very big part of his message is I have come to save the world from their sin. But so also is the secondary message of Christ of great importance. He says, I came... Two, I came to send fire on the earth. He's going to go on and says that, I don't know what you think I came for. I suppose you, you suppose I came to bring peace, give peace on earth. I tell you not all, but I came to bring division. And he's, so he's introduced two things. He's introducing that he's his, that there's a future aspect. There's a fire to his coming that has not yet happened at this point in Jesus' ministry. He talks about that the fire itself hasn't been kindled yet, hasn't even been sparked up. It hasn't been, been, been uh, given the oxygen, the fuel necessary to really build. And so he talks about it as something still for the future. I came to send fire on the earth. Oh, and how I wish it were already kindled. In other words, I wish it were already to go, but it's not. There's an intermediate period of time and there's something that Christ has to endure just as there's something we are going to have to endure getting there. And so we're going to look at that a little bit. But the first thing he says is, I've come to bring fire. Now, some commentators um, have taken this concept and said, well, this is fire purification. Uh, this is purifying fire. Uh, but that doesn't really go along with any of what Christ has said so far. His whole focus throughout this is watch out, be on the alert, don't get caught into these traps that will destroy your faith or will give you a false concept of faith. Uh, guard yourself from these things because a judgment is coming. And so I see the fire here as, as many others see it as really focusing on the judgment that Christ is our judge, that he is, has come to bring that judgment on the earth. And he says, I wish it was already going. I wish it was already in play. I wish it was already happening and occurring, this level of judgment. I say, well, this doesn't sound like the merciful, gracious Jesus. He wishes judgment was already on its way, already kindled, already uh, going. Um, yes. Why? Because this is what was going to be necessary before all the things we look forward to, all the joy, all the uh, heavenly events that we associate with the end times for the Christian community, 
Christ understands that there is a judgment standing between those two. That between the time of Christ on the cross and the time of our eternal rest, there is a great judgment coming, a great fire. And there's no mistaking when we get to Revelation chapter 8, when we see the breaking, or the sounding, I'm sorry, the sounding of the trumpets, the breaking of the seventh seal, the sounding of the trumpets, that as each trumpet sounds, that something happens on the earth, and that is the outpouring or the draw of fire. If we go to that text, we'll find that what initiated that fire was uh, the incense from one of the angels, but also the prayers of the saints. It says the prayers of the saints mingled with that incense uh, moved God to sound forth or to declare the time of the sounding forth of the trumpet judgments. And that they then took out of the fire before the throne of God and began the judgments on earth with that fire of God's righteousness, of God's holiness. And so we find that Christ says, I wish it were already kindled. And in fact, that which will ultimately kindle it is the prayers of the saints having endured the tribulation of this world. Why would Christ want it to already be? Because He knows what is to transpire beyond it. And so we see through this fire its purpose. That God's judgment is not negative, but a positive thing. Let me say that again. God's judgment that we often view as something negative, certainly to be avoided, and yet in and of itself it is not an evil thing, but a good and righteous and and thing that, that if were not the case, if there was not a judgment, then there would be very little to be saved from, really. And so we find that salvation is, is magnified by understanding the judgment of God. So, how is the judgment such a good thing uh, when it's obviously painful? Well, Christ is going to give us an immediate example. The very next verse. He says, here's what I'm looking forward to. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Christ says, I have something that I have to go through. Before I become your, the judge of all the earth, there's something I have to go through myself. There is something that we would look at and say, that is an evil thing. That the crucifixion itself in the culture of the day was viewed as something very negative. Something that, that it wasn't jewelry. It wasn't an icon of the culture. It was capital punishment for capital crimes. It was not viewed in a, in a positive manner at all. And so here the cross stands between Christ and His primary purpose, which is the deliverance of our sin. And what are we told in the Scripture about Christ's attitude towards that? It says, Who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despised its shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. So, what is it that is going to move Christ through this horrible event of His crucifixion is the joy on the other side of it. That only by His enduring this baptism of fire, if you will, His baptism of, uh, that He describes as, as distressing, um, that He's going to be able to accomplish for us our deliverance. And so, it wasn't that He was looking forward to the death. He was not. Clearly, He was not. He was distressed by it. He was concerned over it. He, he, he wanted to avoid it if he could. Even at the very last hour, Father, is there any way that I can avoid this? Because I don't want to do this. And the Father's statement is, nah. Oh, I didn't say nah. He says, no. And Christ's response is, not my will, but yours be done. And so what is it that moves Christ to the cross? Is not some, uh, i got to fulfill my destiny kind of thing. I, I mean, there is a, an aspect of that, but the real destiny isn't the cross. The joy was in the objective, which is our salvation. And therefore, He endured this. And so, likewise, this, this 
necessary judgment must be accomplished. The judgment must be accomplished before uh, this wonderful thing that we have in our mind eye of heaven can come into being. And so we get to the end of the age and we, and we look at not only the seven years of God's wrath poured out on the earth, not only Armageddon, not only um, the God Megahog uh, about the end of the millennial kingdom, but the great, great white throne judgment. And we look at all of these and, and, and we understand the commencement of all of this is really the judgment seat of Christ. And so we have judgment to judgment and the judgment of believers all the way through to the final great white throne judgment of, of the lost. And we, and we look at that huge portion of, of judgment and say, oh, what a horrible thing that the world and that even the Christians are going to be involved in the judgment seat of Christ scenario. We're there at the Bema seat. And so there's judgment for all men in this span of time. And like Christ's crucifixion, it needs to be accomplished. It needs to be accomplished before we can enter into our rest. For there cannot be what the Bible describes as our eternal rest until all the judgments of God are accomplished. Cannot be. Evil cannot go unjudged. It must be dealt with, both in the worthlessness of much of what we call Christian activity, that wood, hay, and stubble that needs to be burned up at the judgment seat of Christ by that fire there, or by the fire of God's wrath being poured out on the earth that we read about in Revelation 8 and following. We see consistently the fire referring to God's judgment to come that must be accomplished just as surely as Christ's crucifixion had to be accomplished. So also does His judgment. And so, right off the bat, we are confronted with a different future maybe than what we are anticipating. You see, most of us have leapfrogged the judgment and we have put in our mind that we're going to have this blissful existence for all eternity. That is coming. But why aren't we as equally distressed about the coming judgment as Jesus was about the coming crucifixion? I would contend we ought to be. Now, distressed, concerned, agony, those are words describing Christ. What are they not? They are not worry. That's sin. We should not worry. We should be distressed. See, there's a difference? Oh, yes. See, worry doesn't believe in that God's in control of the outcome. Distress simply means that we know the outcome, but the intermediate period is going to be painful. Christ knew the outcome of all this. He knew where all this was going to go, but he knew what was going to have to be endured to get to that outcome. You see, when I find myself worrying, it's because I don't know what the outcome is going to be, and I want to know, and I don't trust God with it. Christ was never in that condition, neither should we be. So I'm not calling you here to wring your hands and worry over the judgments to come, but rather to let it distress you. To let the agony of it weigh on you. To speak as Jesus spoke and saying, it must be accomplished in my life. I'm not looking forward to it, but it must be accomplished so that on the other side, I can be purest gold. Whether you want to view that as purification or as judgment, I don't know if there's a distinction that much in Scripture between those two concepts. Secondly, so that's the first concept Christ wants to uh, instill into the mind of his disciples, which is unfortunately not well placed into the minds of Christians even to this day. We've lost track of this necessary fire 
The second one talks about peace. And of course, we understand peace is the ultimate culmination of Christ's work, peace with God. That we can be in a right relationship with God, that that was His purpose. But again, that was His primary purpose. And yet there's a secondary uh, purpose behind that in, in that those that reject Christ are going to be not at peace. You see, we always want to look at just one side of the coin. And Christ here, all He's doing is just turning over the coin and saying, you have to understand the other side to get the whole picture. To prepare your hearts and your minds and your lives for what is entailed in the Christian life, you must know both sides. And we find this consistently throughout the apostles' teaching is they're not just telling you all the good that's going to come, but they're also going to tell you all the trouble that's going to come in your life. Consistently. And of course, one of my favorite passages that I keep quoting over and over is Acts 14. We must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. What was, who was teaching that? Paul. To every church he started, before he left there, the, one of the last things he wanted to make sure they knew was, listen folks, you must through much tribulation enter the kingdom of God. Between here and that future point of glory that we all envision as heaven, there is trouble. And here Jesus Christ is teaching the same thing. Between here and what you ultimately have in your mind is this blissful existence in the kingdom, there's trouble. Let it distress you. Prepare yourself for it. Be strengthened for it. Ready yourself for it. Armor yourself for it. And so what is it that's going to come? Well, it's going to be, while you are at peace with God, something horrible is going to happen here on earth, and that is you're going to not be at peace with men. What? Now, I know the Bible says, as much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all men. As much as it depends upon you. Which tells you what Christ is referring to here. He's referring to those who reject Him as their Savior. That while we attempt to live at peace with men, but we dare not in the, in the course of that compromise our faith, compromise Jesus Christ, compromise truth. We don't compromise anything, but, and yet we, we know that we, we have a latitude that we can move within where we can strive to live at peace with all men. But yet Christ says, be guaranteed that if you're really living the Christian life, you will not experience peace with men here on earth. You'll find division. When we usually think of this division, we want to go out there and talk about the world. You know, those really evil people out there somewhere. Right? That's where the division happens, between us and the world. And uh, those that we're not intimate with, those at work that I have to see and spend a lot of time with, but they're not my intimate people. And they're the ones we're going to get trouble from. It's those government officials we've got to watch out for. It's, it's, it's those people. This is not what Christ tells us, though, is it? Where does the division happen? At home. In your house. Among your most intimate Human relationships. Five in a household. Mom, dad, son, daughter, daughter-in-law. That's the five that we're going to talk about. Mom, dad, dad, mom, husband and wife, their son and his wife, and a daughter. We have these five that Christ is going to use as an example and those five will be divided. Three against two or two against three. And uh, we, we find this division happening in the very core of society. In the most intimate relationships, there is fundamental division. Because when Christ has gotten a hold of your heart, truly gotten a hold of your heart, and has not truly gotten a hold of a heart of even one that you are intimate with in your home, there will be division in your life. If there isn't, then you have to bring question upon whether Christ is really in control of your life. 
Let me say that again. If there is not division and you have unsaved people in your home who are not truly committed to Christ and you do not have contention with them and division with them, then the doubt falls upon whether you really are. Christ says there will be division. That when He enters it, that that will be expected between a father and his son. And the son against his father. Mother and daughter and daughter against mother. mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and vice versa. And, and, and he's not saying that one, does, one side is going to be leaning towards Christ more than the other. He keeps interchanging them to say that, that the working of salvation works and, and people surrender to it. And whether it's the son who's a believer and the father not, or the father a believer and the son's not, um, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be disruptive to homes if Christ truly gets a hold of hearts. We should not be surprised by it. Christ taught that it would happen. And it becomes a frustration when we are somehow taken back by it, that we are surprised by it, that we, that we are like, oh, I didn't know this was going to happen. Well, consistently throughout God's Word, it says it will happen. Promises that it should happen. Not because we seek it. And I don't intend for you to go out here and try to make trouble. But simply by living an obedient Christian life, this is going to happen. You are going to have very near relatives who aren't going to like it. Point blank. Your most intimate relationships are not going to like it. And they're going to rebel against you and against the God that you claim to serve and that you are serving. Um, They're going to seek to make your life miserable. They're going to seek to destroy your faith. They're going to seek to do all that. They're going to seek to put pressure on that. They are going to do everything in their disposal to war against you. Why? Because they are really warring against God. Because they don't want to surrender to God, they cannot be at peace with you. And this is the way it will be. Sometimes the Christians might be the majority in the home, three against two. Sometimes they might be the minority, two against three. But if you're going to live out the Christian life consistently, and in your home there are those who are not believers, be not just fairly warned. And and by believers, I mean class one of the four classes that we studied last week. I would contend that if you have the other three classes in your home, you're going to be at division with them if you're a class one Christian. Classification one, faithful, wise servant. Diligently obeying God's word. Right? But if in your home you have those who claim the name of Christ who are classification two, false evil servant, classification three, a lazy, disobedient servant, knows to do right, but doesn't do it. To him it is sin, the Bible says. Or classification four, someone who claims the name of Christ um, and maybe is truly a Christian, but doesn't want to know the truth and doesn't obey it because they don't know it. You're going to be a division with them. That's just the reality of it. Because... This level of, dis- of this level of obedience, this level of discipleship that God calls us to um, mandates it. And so, what is the context of all of this? Christ says, this is what you're going to have to endure. My judgment and division on earth. You're going re- to get tribulation from the world. And that world might be in your very home. In fact, that is the one place he says to look for it. Frankly, if the world wants to do evil to me, that those out there, the ones out there, I can avoid them. Right? I can fairly well avoid them. I can go get a different job. I can go move to another part of the community, all that. How do you avoid family? A lot harder, isn't it? Much more difficult. Oh, you can do it. Christ says, this is where you need to look for this kind of tribulation. 
Well, he goes on, and he's still pursuing this idea of his coming. And he's saying, listen, the coming is going to be recognizable to some people. He's already referred to this a couple of times and, and um, throughout chapter 12 about uh, his coming and uh, that if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before the angels of God. Um, the assumption is at the end, uh, he gives the parable of the rich fool, talks about um, where is your treasure? Oh, you be rich towards God. Uh, we we're talking about uh, the idea of, of uh, seeking the kingdom of God rather than the things of this world, putting our treasure there. Uh, and then, of course, the whole idea of the judgment in the parable of the, of the four servants. So he says to the multitudes, you know, you're able to tell the weather from signs around you. Shouldn't you also be able to discern what's going on right now? The expectation by God is that if we know His truth, that we should be able to discern what's going on. I want you to notice who He's talking to. Now, He has now switched and talked to who? The multitudes. It says He said. All, he also said to the multitudes, and remember, this is a huge crowd. Beginning of the chapter, remember the huge crowd that was waiting for him. And um, that Luke calls innumerable. And he says, you guys can tell the weather. You know the patterns um, and, and what to expect. And he calls them hypocrites. How foolish you are. You can, you can do all that, but you don't discern what time this is. You don't recognize what's going on around you, what is happening in your very midst. And here is Jesus performing His miracles and with, very, with, with power teaching and the, and the crucifixion within a couple of weeks, maybe within a week of this point of His conversation. He said, can't you see what's happening, what's coming? The judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. Yes, salvation is going to be offered but if you reject that, judgment is on its way. Wake up and take a look. And our statement to one another as well as to the world is, judgment is coming. And last week's message was all about that. Are you really thinking about a judgment to come or have you leapfrogged it, which the Bible doesn't tell you to do, leapfrog that judgment and you're only thinking about the blissful presence of God? Well, there's a great fire to go through to get to that side. It should distress you. And you should consider carefully the agony involved and let it affect your living here. And so we are called upon to discern that there is a judgment to come. And this is what we call the world to look at. You see, we're guilty of it. And if we're guilty of skipping, leapfrogging over the judgment of God, guess what? I'm pretty certain that the whole rest of the lost community has pretty much leapfrogged it too, wouldn't you say? They don't want to think about it. We have Christian communities out there, quote-unquote Christian communities, that have basically just thrown hell out the window and it doesn't exist anymore. If you die before Christ comes, you just cease to exist. And they're becoming more and more numerable. You know, I was at a book signing and, and had an individual... Out of the blue, say, well, I just, you know, in my study, I just can't see it, that there is a uh, hell doesn't exist. And I'm like, whoa, you know, let's back up. Now we have to back way up. You see, we want to leapfrog judgment. Well, the world is itching for that. And in the 60s and 70s, in my young years, um, that was the big move. God is love movement, and judgment was swept away. God is love. And we believe that so much that God was too loving to judge. And now that has inundated the minds of most unbelievers today. And they'll throw that argument at us, and I laugh at them, usually in their face. You're stupid. Or you just choose to be ignorant. One or the other. Because you haven't thought very carefully about which God you're talking about. That this is 
The God that judges throughout all of Scripture. He judges and judges and judges and judges. He provides a way of deliverance and redemption. Yes, He is loving. But first of all, He says, here's the standard. It's perfection. If you don't reach it, I'm judging you. This is the God that people need to be introduced to. You see, the world is leapfrog judgment. They don't consider it. They don't think about it. Even during this season of celebrating Christ's coming, they don't think of Christ's coming as a judge, as the king, as the Lord. They don't think of them in that term. They don't believe in judgment anymore. Well, Christ gives this illustration, and he's a great one for intermingling powerful statements like verse 56, you hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth and how is it you do not discern this time? Why aren't, you, why aren't you paying attention to what's going on? And it can almost be said again these days. Why aren't we paying attention to what's going on? You know, we, could, we, we have this super accurate ability to forecast the weather now. Guess what? Our ability to understand the times is just as much advanced. It really has. For we have 2,000 years of history and to and development to really understand prophecy more than any time, I think, in history. So what are we going to do about it? Well, we're on our way marching to judgment. What are you going to do? Your adversary has you by the arm and you're on your way to the courtroom. What are you going to do about it? Well, you can be stubborn, proud as a mule, in which case you're going to get to the judge's court chambers and what's going to happen to you? You're guilty. You know you're guilty. What's going to happen to the guilty when they get to the court chambers? When you're stubborn as a mule, you're going to be judged, found guilty, and sentenced. But what does a reasonable person who knows that they're guilty do on the way? Christ says, you're on the way to the magistrate. Your adversary is going with you. And he says, make every effort along the way to settle with him. Lest he drag you to the judge. The judge deliver you to the officer. The officer throw you into prison. And you will not depart from there till you pay the very last might. Great illustration. Listen, we are hurtling headlong into the judgment. It is coming on to us. And the fire is getting ready to be kindled. And at Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, I would contend that that's when it really started. And we're just getting closer and closer to it. He says, you're on your way. You're on your way. And right now, as a guilty one, if you're here and not a believer, your adversary is God. He's also the judge. He's the one you've sinned against. You have two choices. You're on your way to the courtroom. That courtroom is the great white throne judgment seat. You're on your way there. What are you going to do? You see, your adversary isn't at the courtroom just waiting for your arrival. He's walking with you. Which is a wonderful opportunity, isn't it? And Christ says, settle it before you get to court. Settle these things. What does it take to settle on your way to court? You're going to have to humble yourself. You're going to have to acknowledge your guilt. And you're going to have to make an agreement with this one who you have sinned against, whom, who is going to go and get the judgment against you. And he says, hey, you take care of this on your way there. You make sure this is resolved before you arrive. And, and this is the offer of God. When Jesus Christ says, I am here to bring fire on the earth, I am here to bring division, I am here to judge, He says, I am the judge, and now you have a little time. You have this little time, and you are walking right into the judgment. And God's right there with you as your adversary. Are you willing to settle it with Him? Say, I'm guilty. Lord, what can we do so I don't have to go through that judgment? I'm guilty, Lord. 
Can we resolve this now? Can we come to a settlement now? What must I do to be saved from the judgment to come? I'm convinced that was what Paul and Silas were singing about, was judgment to come. I wish we had some hymns in our hymn book that talked about judgment. You try to find them, they're rare, extraordinarily rare. We don't like to sing about judgment, and that's too bad. What must I do to be saved from the judgment to come? We don't like talking about the judgment to come, and yet we are running into the time of judgment. And God says, aren't you wise enough to realize that if you get to the courtroom, it's too late? If you show up and you're standing before the judge and you're guilt, the guilty party, guess what? It's too late. You're going to be handed over and handed over and you're going to pay the price for your guilt. Isn't it better to deal with it on the way? To humble yourself and settle the matter? And so we are called upon to settle with God. And He's even willing to do that through the blood of Jesus Christ if we'll humble ourselves, trusting in His judgment and His grace and mercy, accepting His salvation, His way. For it is certain that if we are the ones that are guilty and He is the adversary, that we have to humble ourselves to His way. It's not Him humbling Himself to our way. You know, if, I've, if you've wronged me and I have every legal proof of that, I'm not the one that has to compromise on the way to the court, do, is, do I? No, I, I'm in the right. It's you that has to beg from me. We have violated God's person, character, purpose. And we are hurtling headlong into the time of judgment. It is upon us. If you can't see that, you are truly a hypocrite. You're a fool. And you can go proudly, stubbornly, and walk into the courtroom. And I'll tell you, as Christ told you, you're going to have to pay for every sin you've committed. To the smallest sin you are going to pay forever. Many commentators want to disassociate these and just say these are just random teachings of Christ that he just kind of hit and missed and Luke just strung them together. Um, I don't see it that way. I see a very consistent, solid message here with powerful statements intermingled with equally powerful parables, um, just boom, 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 right after another throughout the whole chapter, warning us, warning us, warning us, and warning us again. Don't get caught in the trap of thinking that somehow avoiding judgment or going through judgment is easy. Don't get caught in that trap. And it shows. It shows in our lives when we stop thinking of fearing God. We are caught in a trap that avoiding or going through judgment is easy. When we can ignore the commandments of Scripture, we have been caught in the trap that going through stripes, going through fire in the judgment seat of Christ will be easy. Or that somehow it's easily avoided. Oh, what a horrible trap. That kind of thinking and Christ says, listen, disciples, listen, multitude, you better avoid that kind of thinking. You are quickly moving to the time of your judgment. Whether it be the judgment seat of Christ as a believer or the great white throne, you are quickly moving there. And it's time that you settle things with God and submit yourself to his truth and start living your life as if you really believe that a, the judgment is 
horrible and distressing and agonizing, for that is what it is. And remember Christ's comparison. The judgment to come should distress you like the cross distresses me. See, it wasn't just the physical agony of the cross that distressed Christ. In fact, I think that was the least distressing of what the cross meant for him. It was the fact that he became sin and was separated from the Father for us. He paid the price that he talks about at the end of chapter 12. For you and for me, he paid the price. And there was great agony there. There was great distress there. You cannot read through the account of the Passion Week and not understand the great agony of the cross, physically, spiritually, emotionally, relationally, in every facet of who Christ is. And brethren, he has pointedly looked at us and said, listen, this fire coming should be distressing you. It should get your attention to say, I want to settle these things. I want to submit myself. I don't want to be an adversarial. I don't want to have an adversarial relationship with God. I want to have a servant relationship with God. I want to be that faithful and wise servant. I want to be that one that has his mind set on the kingdom of heaven and not on the things of this earth. I want to be that one that is that is the genuine article and not the 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 false one, the the hypocrite, the Pharisee. I want to be the one that can look forward to that day. And that day is coming quickly. If you can't see the signs around you, you need to read Scripture more and look around a little more. It's coming quickly. So we are called upon out of that discernment to say, listen, I don't have much time. And even if Christ's coming is beyond my lifetime, my lifetime isn't much time. What's left of yours isn't much time. The fact is, none of us really know what's left of our lifetime, do we? Your time is short. And if God's your adversary today, make sure you understand you are the guilty one, not him. And you will pay. And he is the righteous judge and will enforce that. So we are called upon with this kind of a message. And Christ speaking to the multitudes, I am sure this is not what they wanted to hear. But it's what they needed to hear. You think that my ministry is all about healing people and casting out demons? Christ's ministry was far more significant than that. You think it's all about deliverance, deliverance, deliverance? No. There's another whole aspect of Christ's ministry we've been introduced to now fully. Beginning back in the woes upon the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the scribes, and now the, the watch outs and the lookout, the beware to the disciples of Christ, and then culminating in, listen, judgment's coming. Are you going to take care of it now? Or do you think it's just going to be a little party to go into the courtroom of God and be judged. If that's the case, you are a fool. Powerful message by Christ that Luke brings together and, and I see the Holy Spirit's working and not just randomly putting together a bunch of uh, sayings this is not what this is about, and I can't understand commentators who know God's Word and are spiritually minded to disconnect all of this. This is all very well-knit-together sermon. It's taken me a few weeks to get through it, but one sermon to challenge us. Judgment's coming. Where do you fit? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And Lord, we do look forward to that day and that, Lord, we understand now that between this day and that day, there will be tribulation on this earth for us, even with our own homes. 
that between this day and that day, there will be a judgment where we will have to answer before you for every word spoken, every deed done or not done. Lord, we are concerned, knowing our guilt. Lord, we know that between this day and that day, that there will be a great fire of judgment upon this earth, upon all those around us that we encounter. Lord, let your judgment sit heavy upon us. That it might be numbered among the top purposes of our life. Is to settle with you before that day. And to bring others to that settlement as well. That we might no longer be your adversary, but your servant. Lord, that requires of us this morning to confess and humble ourselves before you, to repent and turn from all these things that you've described for us here. Lord, help us to set our minds on your kingdom. follow you faithfully. Not just in the sight of men, but as a result of a right relationship with you. Praise is in Christ Jesus' name. As we look forward to your coming. Amen.